Well, this morning we are going to be all over the place. We uh, are going to start answering some of the questions that you have asked uh, related to the Bible. Um, the reason we're doing this is 1 Timothy 4 has some really good stuff in it, and so many people are gone on vacation and coming back and forth. I thought we would uh, do some, uh, just some topical things, not that we are not going to do exposition, but just kind of uh, answer some of your questions, see what was on your heart, and uh, just get some of those questions that if you waited until we got to that passage, uh, they might not ever come before you died. And so this is a good, a good chance to launch ahead and launch all over and just answer questions. And so this morning we are going to be answering some of your questions, and if you don't hear your specific question, then there's probably a couple reasons. Um, one is, is uh, you didn't ask a Bible question. A lot of people ask me my personal opinion on things, and my opinion's not worth much, so we aren't going to address those. Um, the Bible questions, though, uh, we have categorized them into different groups, and so um, we will be looking at uh, questions related to salvation, Questions related to ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church. Questions related to eschatology or the doctrine of last things. Questions related to angelology or uh, the doctrine of angels and demons. And Christology or the doctrine of Christ. Um, questions related to death and dying. Uh, just some that I had to categorize under Bible trivia because I didn't know where to put them. Um, Things related to personal prayer and holiness. Um, things related to parenting and parents. And uh, questions related to cults and bad teaching. So this morning we are going to start off and we are going to answer um, question, actually one question. The hardest question asked um, in all the questions I received. I think I got something like 45 of them or something. And usually, you know, I can get through 10 of them or something like that. But this is a hard question asked by one of our seminary students. And so you will have to uh, blame somebody who's the junior high intern for this. <laughs> we won't mention his name. But it is a good question. And uh, next week we will continue on. And this um, is the question. It's... Uh, it's very easy to answer, but very hard to explain. And so we are going to answer it, and then we are going to try and explain it as the answer by itself will not be very satisfying. The question was, explain God's love for the non-elect. Does God love the unredeemed? If I'm not a Christian, does God love me? John 3.16 or does he hate me? Psalm 5, 4 through 6. And really, when you look at um, this question, it's really two questions. Does God love those who he knows will never be saved? Does God love those whom he knows will never be saved? In other words, um, does he love even those who will end up in hell? And that is a good question. And the, the, the verse he cited there, John 3.16, which is a rather easy uh, verse for most of us to recall to mind, which says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So that's pretty easy. He also said, or does he hate me? And he quotes Psalm 5, verses 4 through 6, which says this, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. So, that is where we're at today. The two verses quoted teach us that God loves the world, speaking of the world of men, that He loves them so much that He sent His Son to die on the cross for their sins to save whoever would believe and trust in the gospel message. 
And it says he hates all who do iniquity. That's the paradox that we're going to look at this morning. And so we could just answer it and say, yes, God loves us and hates us and let's go home. But that wouldn't be very good, would it? Because it leaves a lot of things unanswered. So let's answer them. First, let's establish a little bit more clearly that God does have a love for all mankind. If you turn to Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, and uh, you know you can try and follow along this morning. We're going to be all over from Genesis, you know, all over the place. Um, in Titus 3, verses 4 and 5, um, this is what Paul says to Titus. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. In this text, we clearly read that God has a love for mankind. In Romans 5.8, Paul, speaking of God's love, says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, Christ's death is a manifestation of love to whom God died for. So when God sent Christ to die for unworthy sinners, he was demonstrating his love. I mean, what greater love, Jesus says, um, does a man have than that he laid down his life for another? And in this case, it says that Jesus Christ, God's Son, died for us sinners. And he was showing the world how much he loved us by dying for us. No one was worthy No one deserved to be saved. No one deserved God's favor. No one could say, God, you owe me um, salvation because we were all unworthy. And 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 explains that. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means that which satisfies the wrath of God. Now, some would say that the many verses that describe God's love for the world of men or the whole world are really only speaking of the world of the elect. That is, those he has chosen to save, they may not be saved yet, but they will be saved. And so they would interpret these verses that we have read already like this. They would say, God so loved the world of the elect. Or, God demonstrates his love towards the elect. Or, when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for the elect of mankind appeared. They would say, see... Christ really only died for the elect and the elect only, and that God did not die, and so there is no demonstration of God's love for those who will never be saved. So some would say God never sent Christ to die for everyone, only those he knew he was going to save. So this brings us to the first rabbit trail on the question, and that is this, for whom did Christ die? This is a major issue. What is the scope of the atonement? In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, were everyone's sins placed on him or only the sins of those whom God intended to save? That is a big theological question, which has kind of been bantered around for a long time by theologians, and uh, we will look at it right now. Since Christ's death is a demonstration of his love, if it could be proven that Christ did die for all men everywhere, elect and non-elect, then it could just be easily said that he loves all men. And that would just settle the question. Yet some would reason that if God knows who he's going to save, then why would he send Christ to die for those he knows he is not going to save? And this kind of reasoning has two flaws. And here they are. It is to assume that God's ways are our ways. 
It is to assume that God is working on the basis of our logic. And it is reasoning not by exegesis, by looking at the scriptures and seeing what they say, but it is reasoned by what we think God should do. It is certainly true that there are many scriptures, and no one disputes this, that Christ died for the elect. That is a given. That is agreed to by all. The issue is, does the Bible say that Christ died for all men, both elect and non-elect? And we have already looked at several texts that told us God loves the world and he demonstrated his love for mankind and he proved his love for sinners by sending Christ to die for them on the cross. Yet many feel comfortable reading into those texts exception clauses qualifying world with world of elect, qualifying mankind as the mankind, the elect within mankind, defining sinners as sinners who will eventually be saved. And so I think we need to allow the scriptures to speak for themselves. And so the first text that I would like you to consider is Isaiah 53.6, another very well-known text um, in that great text where the scriptures speak of why Christ came and that he died for men. We read this, and I just want you to notice the superlatives here, the all everys and eaches here. Isaiah 53.6 says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now, to me, that is just the death knell to the issue. Because when Isaiah wrote this, he was like one of the very few believers in Israel. The whole nation was apostate. And so Isaiah writes to his wicked people of his wicked generation and says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That is clear that Christ died for all the sin of all who go astray like sheep. In John 1.29, we are familiar with this, when John the Baptist saw Jesus, when he saw Jesus um, um, approaching, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the elect. No, of the world, of the world. And he didn't say the world of the elect. He didn't say the predestined. He said the world, and he does not qualify it. In 1 Timothy 4.10, we read, For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially believers. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? How is Jesus the Savior of all men, especially of believers? Well, this is how. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the Savior of the world in that He is the only Savior which can save anyone. He is preached to the world as the light of the world, as the glory of Israel and a light to the Gentiles. He is the one whom we are to preach to the world, and in that way, He is presented as the Savior to the world. All men. But... Only those who place their faith in Jesus are those who receive that salvation. It's not talking about God saving every single person and saving believers in an extra special way. Um, That is true. God does preserve us. But what it's saying is, is that Jesus is the Savior presented to all the world and he becomes the Savior in specific to those who believe in him with faith. Now, that is a critical verse because it contrasts or counterposts both groups, all men with believers. So it has both categories. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11, is a similar verse when Paul writes to Titus. In Titus 2, 11, it says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. This one helps us understand what Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.10. For the grace of God has appeared and it brings salvation to all men, right? God is commanding that all men everywhere 
are to repent. The gospel is to be spread in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That is what brings salvation to all men. Now, you can't bring salvation to all men if you don't bring salvation to all men. You've got to have somebody, you've got to be able to say, Jesus died for your sins on the cross. Otherwise, what would you tell people when you went out to witness? Oh, God might have died for you. You believe and then I'll know. In Hebrews 2.9, it says this, But we do see him, speaking of Christ, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, listen to this, he might taste death for every one. Now that is a very clear statement. Here is another very clear statement. 1 John 2.2 says this, Speaking of Christ, and he himself is the propitiation, again, a big fancy word that means a, a sacrifice which satisfies the wrath of God. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. Do you see the categories there? Not for us, not only for us believers only, but for those of the whole world. 1 John 4, verses 14 and 15, this is our last text, says this, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in Him and He in God. The world, whoever. So these texts tell us that Jesus died for the sins of the world, which was a demonstration of God's love for all men. The call to repentance and faith in the gospel, according to Acts 17.30, is universal. All men everywhere are commanded to repent and believe what? The gospel. The gospel message that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Yet, because all men suppress the truth and are unwilling to come to God, only those chosen, only the elect, end up receiving the benefits of Christ's death. So while Christ died for the sins of the world, it is only applied to those who believe. You see, just because Christ died for our sins, that does not mean that we have instant atonement. Otherwise, we would never have to really believe because the elect would just be all atoned for and it'd be over, right? No, you have that atonement available, but you do not receive it until you what? Place your faith in Christ. And then you receive forgiveness. And then you receive atonement. It's kind of like this. I buy you an airplane ticket. And I give you that airplane ticket to fly to Hawaii. Now, since I purchased the ticket and the ticket is all paid for... You aren't in Hawaii just because I paid the ticket. You have to receive the ticket from me and get on the plane and fly there. You have to apply what I paid for, otherwise you aren't there. And that's how it is with the atonement. Jesus paid the penalty. All the sins of the world were placed upon him. He died for the sins of the world. And as believers place their faith in Christ as the elect, as those whom God saves, place their faith in Jesus, they receive atonement for their sins. He tasted death for everyone. He died for all, died for the world of men, is the Savior of all men, and is the propitiation not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Jesus had all sins universally placed upon him at his crucifixion. And some would argue this, well... Why would Christ die for the sins or suffer for the sins of those he never intended to save? Well, that is an interesting question. And we could just answer, it doesn't really matter because the Bible teaches that he did. And that's good enough. God doesn't tell us all the whys. But here's some of the reasons, I believe. Why does God not always um, give us all these answers and clear? I don't know, but think about this. We could answer this. He did it as a demonstration of his love for mankind. That's what the scriptures teach. He did it so that no one would have an excuse on the day of judgment. No one will be able to say on that last day, well, I couldn't be saved because Jesus never died for me. 
Now, the very reason men go to hell is because they do not receive the love of the truth of the gospel so as to be saved. They reject it. And because they reject it, the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, that is why they end up spending eternity in hell. Any sin can earn them a ticket to hell, but what guarantees their attendance in hell is rejecting the gospel. And you could say also that he is the propitiation not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world, having tasted death for everyone because he wanted to ensure this fact that all men had had sins taken off of them and put on Christ and that those people who reject have no excuse in judgment. God will have very just means not only to to condemn them because they are sinners, but to condemn them because they did not receive God's provision for their forgiveness. And so those are some of the reasons, I believe, why Christ had all the sins of the world placed upon him, as is clear from the Scriptures. It may not seem logical to us, but it's what the Scriptures teach. But then we ask ourselves, what is the gospel? If... If men reject the gospel, what does the gospel say? And this is what Paul said the gospel was, and this is one of his shorter treatments of it. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, he talks about that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day, according to the scriptures. This is the gospel that Paul preached as of first importance, by which he says, you stand by which you are saved. What was the message Paul preached? Christ died for our sins. Everyone's sins. So we conclude that God loves sinners, both the elect and non-elect, as a demonstrated by the clear fact that Christ died for all men and put the sins of all men upon him. So God loves you. You can relax. So, does God hate you? This is another question. Does God hate sinners? Does God's holy justice cause him to hate sinners, both the elect and non-elect? We've already looked at Psalm 5.5. You hate all who do iniquity. Now, how many of you have committed iniquity or sin? Here we are. Now, that seems pretty clear, doesn't it? The Hebrew verb for hate is a perfect tense, which tells us at a point in time, God began to hate people, and the results of that hatred continues to the present because they are sinners. The phrase do iniquity is an active participle, which means he hates those who actively do iniquity, who continually do iniquity. Now, when you were speaking about fallen mankind, everyone fits into that category, doesn't it? We are all sinners, even those who are saved are still sinners. We still sin, even though we are forgiven of our sins in Christ, we still sin here and now. Practically speaking, on this earth, in the flesh, as Paul said, wretched man that I am. I don't do the things I want to do. I do the very things I don't want to do. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I can't wait to get rid of this body of death so I can be freed from my sin. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Anyone who says, Oh yeah, I don't sin anymore. They deceive themselves and the truth is not in them. But there is a difference between believers and unbelievers in this area of sin. Salvation is a transformation of a person's life so that they sin but no longer practice sin. And if you turn to John chapter, 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 9, you will see that John goes into this in some detail. 1 John 3, 4 through 9. John says this, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. 
For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, all those phrases in there, sins and practices, sins are all present active verbs and participles talking about an ongoing, ever increasing rebellion against God. Just rebel, 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 rebel against God. That's what it's talking about. Believers sin, but they do not practice sin according to the word of God. They don't live in continual state of rebellion against God without regret, without remorse, without repentance, without confession. And a believer may fall into sin for a time, but they will be miserable and they will repent and confess. This is what we discussed last week. True salvation causes transformation and regeneration. We become new creatures, not perfect, but we progress in sanctification. That is, we become more like Christ. As we read this morning from 2 Corinthians 3.8, we are transformed into His image. Or as Paul says in Philippians 1.6, that we, uh, He who began a good work in us will continue that good work until the day of Christ Jesus. He will transform us into Christ's image. So God, by His grace, changes us, makes us into new creatures and saves us so that we might live in righteousness. And once we are saved, we have forgiveness, we have justification, we have Christ's atoning work applied to us, we are sanctified not only positionally, but in a process as we grow in Christ's likeness here and now. And Christ's perfect righteousness is applied to us, so God can see us as perfectly righteous and holy and just in His sight. That is the great benefit of being a believer. Jesus himself is our advocate. So we may sin, but our sins are covered in the blood of Christ. And we don't live in constant rebellion because when he saves us, he frees us from slavery to sin. We were slaves of unrighteousness, but now we are slaves of righteousness or obedience to God. Now, the psalm says that God hates all who do iniquity. An unbeliever practices sin because everything he does is sin. An unbeliever cannot please God, according to Romans 8, 5 through 8. He cannot please him. He is unable to do so. He is hostile towards God. And all his deeds are but filthy rags. He just lives in a constant state of rebellion against God because he will not submit to God nor receive Christ's sacrifice or the gospel message. Yet isn't it true that even believers, before they are saved, live in constant rebellion? Isn't that what the scriptures teach? I mean, think about what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. He says, we too, speaking of he himself, the Jews, the believers, we all too lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Every single person who hasn't yet repented is a slave to sin. That's what we learn in Romans 6. So we all lived in the flesh, and those in the flesh are hostile towards God. We would have to conclude that God hates all those who practice iniquity, both the not-yet-saved elect and the non-elect. And let's look at the scriptures to confirm this. Psalm 11.5 says this, The Lord tests the righteous... And the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says, There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue. And hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. That's what God hates, this one who is wicked. In Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, the classic text quoted in Romans 9 about Esau and Jacob, we read this. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, 
but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. He hated him. In Malachi 2.16, the Lord says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong. He hates him. The Lord of hosts, so take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. God hates those who do evil. It is crystal clear. You have probably heard the saying, love the sinner and hate the sin, and this is true, and this is good, and this is right. We are to love the sinner, but never the sin. We are to hate what God hates, and God hates sin. We are to be like God and hate those sins which God hates. And there are many scriptures that exhort believers to hate sin. Turn to Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. And uh, you'll see how this is. In Proverbs 8.13, we read this. Pride and arrogance and the evil way, or or the Lord, um, excuse me, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Here we are told that as a believer, if you are one who fears the Lord... The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. In Psalm 30 or 26, 5, you read this. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. Now, that's just the psalmist. He hates them. Psalm 31, 6 says, I hate those who regard vain idols, but I trust in the Lord. Psalm 119:13 says, I hate those who are double-minded. But I love your law. And then this one here is just a gripper. Psalm 139. Psalm 139, 21 through 22. The psalmist says, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Now, that is interesting. That is, that is, those are some interesting passages, aren't they? And that's just some of them. These psalms are all speaking of how a person who walks with God feels about sin and feels about those who sin against God. They hate it. The word hate means to loathe or despise or abhor, to just have a repulsion, a holy repulsion against sin. Just, ugh, hate. It's a strong emotion. And if God were to love evil, he would not be holy, would he? God cannot love evil. Otherwise, he would be an unholy God. He has to hate evil. The scriptures make it clear that all men are evil. All men are totally depraved. They are conceived in sin, born sin, and sin because they're sinners. They all fall short of the glory of God, and there is none righteous, not even one. Hell, or more precisely, the lake of fire, is the eternal expression of God's hatred towards sinners. It is a place of eternal torment where both men and fallen angels suffer his holy wrath day and night forever and ever because they have sinned against him. So the answer to our question is that the scriptures teach that God both loves and hates sinners. We see the same behavior reflected in godly men when they talk about their love and hate for sinners also. And you ask, how can this be? I mean, how can we both love and hate somebody? I mean, how does that work in God's God's plan? How can the godly psalmist under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit... Speak of hating sinners with the utmost hatred and making them his enemies. And and the the New Testament talking about love your enemies and love those who persecute you. I mean, how how in the world does that work? And these are good questions, but you probably don't want to bother with the answer. But I'm going to give it to you anyways. Some of you as curiosity meters probably pegging out, going, that is a great question. It is a good question. And you can see while I'm taking so much time on this. The answer is God both loves and hates sinners, 
But the answer is very complex, and this takes us to another rabbit trail. We have to ask ourselves this. How or why could God love a sinner if he hates sin? How could he love us if we are totally depraved, if we are corrupt, if the thoughts and intentions of our heart are only evil continuously? If our heart is desperately sick and deceitful above all else, if our thoughts and, and are defiled and our consciences are defiled, how in the world does God love us? I mean, he can't love the sin part. Well, when you study the attributes of God, you discover that all of God's attributes are infinite. And all of them function simultaneously. That means all at once. All at the same time, they function completely. He is the Lord. He changes not. He is the God of infinite love. He is the God of holy hatred for sin all at once. Now, one part of his nature constantly hates sin and the sinner, and another part of his divine nature constantly loves the sinner, not because of the sin. He does not love the sinner because of the sin, Yet the problem we have to ask ourselves is what is it inside of men that God can love if they are so sinful? And if we could just find that out, then we could find out why he is able to love sinners, even the elect sinners. And the answer is this. It is his image in man. God loves his image in man. That's what he loves. And then when Adam and Eve, when they were created, they were created perfect and sinless. And before the fall, they reflected in an uncorrupted way the image of God in man. God, by his grace, knows that through salvation, he can restore a person, transform their soul so that they again reflect the image they had before the fall. And he can make them holy and righteous. And it is this, his holiness and his righteousness and his image within man that he loves. That's how he loves man. But the question then, another little rabbit trail here, what is the image of God in man? If God loves men, sinners, because they bear his image, what is that image? You see, the image is what gives men value. It's what makes them far more valuable than animals. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 23, Are we not worth much more than the sparrows? In Matthew 12, 12, he said, Men are worth much more than sheep. Evolution, of course, has tried to make animals equal to humans. After all, if evolution is true, every time you swat a fly or kill a gnat, you're probably killing something you once were, your great-great-great-granddad or whatever. See, evolution teaches we are just animals of a higher evolution, that there is really no difference between us. And so the tree huggers and Those who get all bent out of shape because a whale dies or a tree is cut down or mice are used in a laboratory for medical research are victims of evolutionary thinking. Animals are not equivalent to humans. They don't even come close to it. They do not have a soul. They are given to us as a resource to use, not to treat like people. And what is a shame is, is that why people are crying out and Every week and almost every edition of every paper, there's somebody up in arms over a tree or a whale or a seal or a dolphin. Millions of babies are dying all over the world, all the time, being aborted, and that's fine. That is evolution, the fruit of evolution. The scriptures teach that men have far more valuable value than animals because they are created in the image of God. And that is what gives us this incredible value. Now, let's just look at this whole idea of the image of God. Turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and we're going to trace this through the scriptures and try and show you what this image of God is. And then if we can understand what the image is, then we'll understand how God can love us even though we're sinners. In Genesis 1, 26, 
we read this. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, what you want to notice here is that man was created in God's image. Both male and female were included in that image. And that in both times, in verse 26 and 28, he tells us that being created in the image of God included ruling. Ruling. So part of what it means to be created in the image of God is to be created a ruler. Think about it. God created Adam and Eve as kings of the earth to rule over all the earth, all the creatures and everything that crawls and creeps and does whatever it does in the face of the earth. That is how God is in the image, or man is in the image of God. Just as God is sovereign over all the universe, just as God is the king of heaven and earth, and just as God rules all things, so he gives Man, this sphere of dominion, the earth, and he puts man on the earth and says, Now you be like me, and as I rule the universe, you rule the earth. And in that way, man is in God's image. But something happened. Adam and Eve chose to disobey their king, God, and submit to Satan. And when they did this, they lost their dominion. Because they served the creature rather than the creator, they lost their dominion of the earth. Satan is now the god of this world. He is now the prince of the power of the air. The whole world now lies in the power of the evil one, Satan. And man is no longer ruling creation as God intended. They are slaves of sin and Satan. All men before coming to Christ walk according to the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now working presently in every son of disobedience. And they are slaves to him. But the image of God includes more than just a place to rule and the ability to rule. It also includes righteousness and holiness. God is righteous and holy, and he created men to be righteous and holy. And this is another aspect of the image of God. And this would include any of God's attributes that he gives to man which make us different from the animals but like him. And the fall nearly obliterated the image of God in man. Because man became so sinful that they basically didn't represent God in hardly anything. But we know the image of God is still there. And we know it from several texts. Turn to Genesis 9. Genesis 9, verse 6. This is right after the flood. Right after Noah does his offering to God. And he speaks in chapter 2 of how Noah's supposed to multiply and fill the earth just like Adam and Eve, and that God would put the fear of them and the terror of you on every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and everything that creeps in the ground and all the flesh of the sea, verse 2, into your hand are given, every moving thing. And then he says this. Well, look at verse 5. Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast I will require it, and from every man and from every man's brother I will acquire the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, now this is capital punishment it's talking about here, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Right here, one of the first laws concerning capital punishment found in the Old Testament is this. If you kill somebody, men will have to kill you. 
Now, we aren't talking about killing and war and things like that. We're talking about murder, premeditated murder. If you murder somebody, you will be executed because you have killed somebody in the image of God. So we know the image of God still remains. If you turn over to uh, one other text, James chapter 3, way over in the other end of the Bible, right after the book of Hebrews. In James chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, we read this. No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. And then verse 9, he says this. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. And that term, likeness of God, could also be translated image of God. It is the same word used in the Hebrew version of the Old Testament, the LXX, for image in Genesis 1.26. So James says, you curse somebody, you are cursing a person created in the image of God. So we know the image of God remains, but what is the image of God? All those verses tell us is that there is an image of God in man, but it doesn't tell us what it, was, what it is. Well, we've already hinted that it has to do with righteousness and holiness, and we will further bear this out. If you turn over to 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, I told you, if you have a new Bible, you're going to break it in this morning in the next couple of weeks. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, This is what we read. Paul, speaking of unbelievers, says this, talking about how Satan blinds them. It says, In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, this is a great thing here. Don't lose me here. I'm almost done. Rabbit trails are almost over. Jesus is the image of God. And it is Satan who is trying to hold back the image of God, keep the glory of Christ away from unbelievers so that they don't see the glory of Christ. Christ is the image of God. In fact, the author of Hebrews says he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. And he said to Philip in John 14, 9, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So hang on here. Men were created in the image of God, perfect, holy, without sin. Men fell, and the image of God remained, but in a very imperfect and corrupted way. We might even say only in potential does it remain, maybe in seed form. And then when one comes to salvation in Jesus Christ, that image then can grow into the image of who? Jesus Christ. We grow into the image of Christ. So here is the answer to the question, what is the image of God? What is it that Jesus has in fullness that believers here and now have only in part? What quality do we possess in sanctification and progress in in sanctification as we become more like Christ? It is holiness. It is righteousness. This is at least part of the image of God. Not only the ability to rule and have dominion, which was forfeited over to Satan, but also to be transformed into the image of Christ. That's why we read that verse this morning. We are being transformed into that image. So after the fall, men became very unholy, unrighteous, and wicked. And then... God, by His grace, saves men. Why? Because He loves them. Why does He love them? Because He loves His image in them, and He knows that through salvation He can transform them into the very holy and perfect image of Christ. And so He is able to love them with the utmost love, which is expressed by sending Christ to die on the cross. So here's the answer. Does God love those he knows will never be saved? The non-elect, yes. He loves them because they were created in his image. Does God hate the non-elect? Does he hate those who live in constant rebellion against him? Yes. God hates 
all who do iniquity. Rebellion is the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry, as Samuel said to Saul. God hates those who commit sin and the sin they commit. Does God love those who are not um, saved yet but are the elect? Yes. Even though they haven't believed? Yes. He loves them because they are in his image. He loves them because Christ died for them. He loves them because they are his gift to his son. He loves them in an extra special way by choosing them before the foundation of the world to be his own people for his own possession. It is only by God's grace that any of us are not instantly consumed by God's holy justice, and that is where mercy comes in. Mercy is the shield that holds all of us from the wrath of God. Mercy is that which stays God's justice for a time so that grace might bring us to salvation. So God has to hate sin because he is holy. He has to hate sinners because they are in rebellion against him. Yet, because he sees his image in man and sees the potential they have in Christ, he is able to love them and love them unconditionally. So if you repent of your sins, all your sins will be washed away. You will be made whiter than snow. You will begin to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. God will slowly transform you into the image of Christ, who is the image of God. There is no condemnation against you in Christ Jesus, because you have every bit of Christ's righteousness given to you. And God's hate for you has all been poured out on Christ and only love is left. And that is the great message of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning thankful that we were able to look at some very deep and complex theological truths. I just pray that people here were able to understand just how you can hate sinners and how you can love them that you don't love us because we're sinners. You love us because we were created in your image, because you can make us like Christ. And Father, we do thank you for that. Father, help us to remember, though, that even though we are saved and even though we are sinners, that you do hate sin still. And Father, help us to not do that which you hate. Help us to walk in holiness before you. Help us to give you glory by everything we do and say. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you have some prayer needs, if you would like somebody to talk to you about salvation, if you want to just have things explained to you, there will be some people in the prayer room, and you can ask them any of the questions I didn't answer. I'm sure they'll have the answers for you. The rest of you are dismissed. Have a great day.